Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats. But only if they came back from the dead. Hi, I'm Jeremy. I'm a dork living in Portland, Oregon, who spent too many years listening to podcasts and not doing anything creative. This is my attempt to rectify that, to create and contribute something where I talk to people about their cultural obsessions and try to give some recommendations of my own. Welcome to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. So what was your what was your pitch for the question that this podcast is asking? Not really a- asking a particular question. It's more of a shared uh, a shared experience of uh, of the uh, possibly in quotes, possibly out of quotes, finer examples of Stephen King's cinematic ad- adaptations or adaptions. I like the yeah. It's definitely one of the better adaptations in my experience because, of course, it was written by Stephen King and he wanted them to stick so closely to the script. But that not saying that it was the best acted one. I'm just saying it's one of the closer ones to the actual story. Now, if you look at something like The Shining, where, you know, he had the topiaries and the hedge maze come alive, that's, you know, Kubrick would never have included that. But there was definitely some variation from his themes. Right. And you are listening to Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Once again, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us again on a no longer a summer sweltering evening here in Portland, Oregon. Thank God. And we are finally free of the triple uh, was it triple digit days and ash haze hell of August. Um, joined by uh, returning friends. This is going to be a kind of a um, kind of a different kind of an episode from our the the what, half a year plus of, like, Lefty Pod we've been putting out? Uh, See, friends of the pod, would you uh, you please introduce yourself to to the viewing audience? To be clear, this is still a leftist podcast. We're just talking about a movie. Right. Um, This is Nat, and you may remember me from previous episodes and also from my own podcast at Metamachina. Judd represents the farmer, the common man, the working class, whereas Dr. Creed represents the arrogance of people like Elon Musk, who are so determined to steal blood from young people and so determined to just tear life away from others to basically keep themselves going as this parasite on society that I, for one, was delighted to see that he got what coming what was coming to him. And I'm Jacob. I'm back. Hey, everybody. What's up? Yep, Jacob. Uh, thank you, Jacob, for returning after a prolonged uh, prolonged absence. How I will agree it? with you on that. I think he was gentrifying, and he also definitely buried some shit in a sacred Indian burial ground, and that's not what you do. This really continues the themes that were, I think, clearly established by the TV show Altered Carbon. They're basically the same, if you think about it. Yeah, we can have the whole podcast be about the duality of cyberpunk and Stephen King's main horror Stephen King did do a uh, a techno techno-centric horror flick a horror book which I think came out as like a terrible TV special Actually, do you remember cell cell about like cell phones that somehow were became a, a vector for the zombie disease no but that sounds very fascinating I need to watch that and then at one point it gets of course supernatural because why don't they Every single one does. There is always a demonic spirit or an otherworldly interdimensional de- deity or monster that is causing the things happening. Something like in that. In Maine. Only in Maine. 
that's where everything, all the shit goes down. Right. And because, one, well, I should to say why we are here this evening is uh, one of the things that I wanted to do for the longest time was to do kind of a, uh, bec- uh, you know, there are uh, there are a thousand and one podcasts on various themes, uh, um, you know, rather, you know, people, every you know, everyone from like people rewatching, say, like every episode of Melrose Place backwards or, you know, commenting on like, you know, the the the, the uh, like the middle seasons of like Dallas. <laughs> Uh, we wanted to do something else. This is uh, I wanted to do Stephen King film adaptations because, boy, do they run the gamut. And the, fortunately, Jacob and uh, Nat here volunteered to uh, to help me on this, um, I guess, experiment in kind of a you know bit of a change of pace because we haven't we haven't done a movie or a reaction cast in at least like a year or more. Everything else that we've talked about has been like a lot of the other stuff, but yeah, I think the last time was the Star Trek Discovery episode where I decided to sing the theme song to Enterprise, and I apologize for that. It's been a long road getting from there to here. Looking back on it, it was a bad decision, and I should be shamed for it. Uh, no shame here. We uh, we're we're we are an open place. So I wanted to start off with one of the most infamous uh, adaptations of King's work, 1989's Pet Cemetery, starring, um, let's see, who does it start? It stars Fred Gwynn as Judd, the guy with the memorial, the memorable accent. It stars Denise Crosby straight off of, uh, I think, Quitting Next Generation. Um, Tasha Yard deserved better. Yeah. Well, the, well, it was going to say early year, you know, the year, the year, the first year of uh, the first year of Next Generation was so bad, you know, two thirds of the of the female leads quit the show. Yeah. So, but um, and then like a bunch of other cast of characters, not the most memorable and kind of just in like a disappointing lead played by. I don't even remember what the hell was the guy's name. I pulled up the, I should probably have like his like a, the IMD the IMDb up or something. I feel like if we speak his name aloud three times, he'll be summoned and just stare at us and not actually emote like he did for the entire movie. Dale Midkiff, Dale Midkiff playing Lewis Creed in a role that, according if you believe IMDb trivia, which may or may not be true, uh, at one point Bruce Campbell might have been up for that role, which been a, would have been a much much more memorable. Especially for the uh, the scenes where he's slipping around uh, in a wet bathroom, tripping almost tripping over a rat, and or the uh, the overmoding. Can we just agree that the cat was the best actor? All eight of them. Mm-hmm. All okay. of the all eight of the of the cats, the stunt cats, and the an, the uh, animatronic cat puppets. So, uh, Pet Cemetery, the story uh, adapted from the book, the story of. Why you do not want to buy a uh, an unsold farmhouse near a uh, highly trafficked road, you know, right about twenty miles outside of Bangor. That is near a cemetery. That is near an Indian burial ground. Right. Right. Near a huge, huge water reservoir, and a massive paper mill. That's what people say. Yeah, that's a that's a classic saying. Yeah, it's you know happens a lot. So I think the, to since we're still experimenting with the format and or you know f- effectively stealing it from uh, plenty of other movie casts on there, uh, let let us do. Um, I think that if you would, since you're the one who actually has it up, can we start by the uh, just going through like recounting? Let us recount the story for the five people in the audience who haven't actually seen this gem of a film. 
Well, the story very closely follows the book, which was released in 1983, one of Stephen King's wonderful fever dreams that he published after having an experience where he had moved into a house to work at the University of Maine as a teacher and lived next to a pet cemetery that was in a field. And it was a highly trafficked road. A bunch of pets died, including his own, and that's yep. how he got the idea for the story. So as we begin, the Creed family moves from Chicago to the small town of Ludlow, Maine. They end up bef- befriending their elderly neighbor, Judd Crandall, played by Fred Gwynn, who takes them to the isolated pet cemetery, misspelled cemetery with a S-E-M, because yep. apparently in Maine they can't spell. Right, or at least all, well, or at least all the local... Uh, uh, local urchins and children can't spell, but yet s- somehow all seem to have the same handwriting and like visual style of building the graves. Yes, although that's the weird thing. The first, the first animal we see in the pet cemetery. Do you remember what it is? It's not the goldfish, right? No, it's a skunk. Oh yeah, the skunk. And, and it's alive. Yeah, it's in a live skunk, just kind of wandering around in the uh, in a slow pan over there with like kind of creepy disembodied children's voices. Well, skunks are pretty goth. They are goth. Yeah, main skunks at least. Oh, sorry. So, no, 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 that's perfectly fine. They are, go there from this little pathway that leads from their house directly. That seems to be very well maintained. Right. I mean, it looks perfect. Somebody's out there keeping that pet cemetery maintained. Like you said, yeah, they, they even they even voices the fact that, you know, this has been abandoned for years. It's been an empty house. Nice to have a soul walking out. Yet the, you know, the the the, the evil sports of, spirits of the forest have been, you know, um, you know, active with the weed whacker over the seasons yeah or judd crandall just keeps his house like shit on the outside so that he can actually just work on that pet cemetery because that's where his beloved dog spot was buried back in 1924 yes this movie makes you realize how old it is hey folks this is jeremy just popping in here if you like what you're hearing why not help us uh, make the show support us for as little as a dollar a month donated through our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Every little bit helps. Thanks. Do you want to read the rest of it? No, you You should do it. I'll read the rest. Okay, where do I come in? Uh, you're going to go for, yeah, you're going to talk go. about Pax Cow. Pax Cow. Right, the, the, um, okay, and we're back after the strange, um, <laughs> the spirits came in. Yeah, the, the spirits came in. Also, the one thing I do like about the film is like, yeah, we we are introduced by the new f- the uh, the the yuppie family of professional, uh, lots of hair moosed, um doctor father sporting a have you hugged your MD today uh, bumper sticker, which giving the personality of the guy is like, wait, why would he put that on his own car? Because anyway, nobody wants to hug him. No, and he doesn't want hugs from anybody either. The um, oh sorry, um, Jacob. If you could uh, continue with the um, uh, with the plot of such. Later, Creed is working at the University of Maine when a young student named Victor Paxcow is brought in with severe injuries from a car accident. The young man dies, but not before warning Lewis by name of the pet cemetery. A man's heart is stony, Lewis. How did you know my name? I'll come to 
did you know my name? That night, in what is seemingly a dream, Victor visits Lewis, warning him about the burial ground beyond the pet cemetery. Wearing shorts. Wearing shorts. And high, and, and, uh, he was and, jogging when he died, okay? Like, nobody picks her outfit when they fucking pass into the next life, right? But, but I mean, technically, we all do, don't we? Let's true. Yeah. Food for thought. Be careful about what you're wearing when you go for a bike ride. That's all I'm saying. Well, that's the thing. Well, that's the, well, <laughs> the scene from Beetlejuice is like, if I, knew, if I knew then what I know now, I would have had my little accident. Anyway. Yeah. Lewis wakes up to find his feet covered in dirt. Because, yeah, even if you're, you know, you're a sonambulist, sonambulist you still don't use the, uh, the front mat after, like, tromping around. No. And he looked like he had gone through a bog. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Lewis Pascal. Pascal. Paxcow. Paxcow. The Paxcow. It was Paxcow. Paxcow's dad is going to do something really bad. Who is this Paxcow? Is he is he like the boogeyman? Yes, which is even which even in the in the in the subtitles of the film is hyphenated thanks to the adorable Stephen King shining like child. Well, she technically does have the shining if we continue to believe that all of the Stephen King universe is shared. That's true. Maybe she grew up and she found uh What's his face? Uh, Danny Torrance. Danny. So Pax, obviously, meaning peace, mm-hmm. and cow, referring to cows. So here we are establishing... Sacrificial, sacrificial cow. A oh sacrificial cow. But not only that, he also, I think, represents the placid nature of the proletariat and the importance of rising up. <laughs> because, you know, the populace is docile. Well, they certainly are in this world, because yeah. there's a house burning and nobody comes for, you know, ever. It demonstrates the impossibility of the classes managing to interact with each other meaningfully, because Paxcow is trying to warn him about what's coming, but Creed and his arrogance just completely disregards that. This is true. Also, it should, it should to specify, only the only Ellie, the kid, thinks he ca- calls him the Paxcow. Uh, the character's name actually is Pascal. Pascal? Where do I know that name? Pascal. Pascal? Was she saying Pascal? From the mouths of babes. Yes. Yeah, so inexplicably, this young man dies and then shows up in the main character's dreams warning him about what he doesn't already know, which is that there is a, again, Indian burial ground past the pet cemetery. Which has already been kind of like both inferred to and foreshadowed about like what, like 60 times in the first 20 minutes of the film? Yes. This film is a great example of how you can use reverse psychology to make anybody do anything if they're in a Stephen King story. Mm-hmm. This is the place where the dead speak. I want to wake up. I want to wake up. That's all. Don't go on, Doc. No matter how much you may feel you have to, do not go on to the place where the dead walk. Yeah, a lot of times, yeah, all of the uh, the main character is, um, you know, really warned off of the worst thing to do by, you know, other characters pointing and telling him, not, pointing where to not to go and telling him not to do it, which he then, of course, heads off to. Except that Judd tells him to do it and actually leads him out there, so... 
Exactly. Well, and this is a response to this death that has been experienced. Oh, wait, no, no, not this death, because this death has no relevance outside of having a ghost wander around the movie to tell them to not do things or do things and then inexplicably lead to their deaths anyway. But then we have our poor, horribly underrepresented maid. What's her name again? Missy. Missy. Poor Missy. <laughs> well, apparently not, isn't even, is not in the original book, but... Yeah, no, they literally brought in a character to do the laundry, to do her nor'easter accent. Always thought it would be lucky to marry a doctor. Wish I had a doctor around with my stomach pain so bad. <laughs> Guess I'll never be lucky. Hell, I ain't married anyone. And then hang herself because she has cancer. Right. Her two, I think bo only two scenes, both of which mentioning, ah, oh, the stomach pains. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, like I said, she talks about her stomach, you know, she's there just to have stomach cancer, commit suicide, and, um, like, add more death to a film saturated with it. She's there to establish the lack of affordable health care. Actually, this is probably truth, because if she's working for these rich assholes, and she can't afford to get anything taken care of, and she's feeling like she's terminal and unable to actually treat it, yeah. Well, I mean, and the guy's a doctor for crying out loud. Well, you know where he he does offer to you know he does offer the he was like yeah, I can take a look at that too you know he offers her you know his services that she turns down so mm. but anyway back to back to our, our our summary coming up with jokes throughout coming up with jokes on the spur of the moment is a lot harder than you think, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> We're trying. I'm crushing it. All right, so then we move on to the fact that there is the family cat church who is owned by Lewis's daughter, Ellie. So the family goes away for Thanksgiving to Chicago. Lewis stays behind, claiming that his wife, Rachel's dad, will not want him to be there. But I'm just thinking he wants a bachelor weekend until you, you know, see later that the first time that they interact in the movie, he punches him in the face, so. You stinking shit! You killer of children! <laughs> He's probably not wrong. Anyway. Yeah, it's like one of the many, many, many subplots of the film that kind of just gets, you know, at, you know, from the, I'm guessing from the book that gets excised in the actual film. So you're like, wait, why are these people this, this angry this quickly? Yeah, we just rely on you to have read the book before you watch the movie or even to care. So Church gets run over by one of the many trucks that are going past their house and Judd finds it. And Judd basically says that he's going to help Lewis so that Ellie is not traumatized by the death of her cat because she's already been traumatized by the death of the person that she's met like two times. And so he takes him to the Micmac Indian burial ground, the real cemetery, which is past the pet cemetery. And there is a wonderful montage. It's like Lord of the Rings going through the mountains. They travel far and wide to reach this lovely burial ground sort of, yeah at one point going through this weird like almost like lovecraftian quarry yeah lights she, in the forest smoke machines the works yeah odd sound you know odd sounds of what he claims is a loon in the background because they didn't want to include that subplot but yeah Just a loon, that's all. I don't think it was a subplot. I think it was literally, it happened in the books as some sort of eerie connotation, and then they just 
kept it in. Wait, is there a loon subplot? No. Is there like a Woody Woodpecker-esque figure like going around giving a strange tidings? There would... is the legend of the Wendigo. Yeah, there's more, yeah, there is Wendigo stuff in there, which I think is you can kind of which is the weird sounds that he hears like twice. Yeah. Okay. I know. This is Jacob's first experience with this text, so he gets to be the straight man of this episode. I didn't read the book. I hadn't seen the movie. I'm confused and kind of hungry more than anything right now. <laughs> I don't blame you. Do you like a snack? I I want the snack of knowledge. Read on. All right. Oh, my God. Okay. So they go and they bury the cat, and Judd says that it's going to come back. Lewis asks if a person was ever buried in the grounds, and Judd replies, Christ on his throne, no. Whoever would. And he knocks over his Budweiser. It's a very dramatic scene. Lots of Budweiser, lots of like Budweiser uh, long mix in this film. They yeah. definitely help pay for the film. Then they go and bury the Budweiser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does it come back? Yes, it comes back, but it comes back sour. Ah. <laughs> oh my god! And that's where Bud Light comes from. <laughs> and then the, yeah, they left it out overnight. It became Bud Dry because it evaporated. Okay, so let's talk about Church. Church comes back, but he is an quote-unquote evil shell of himself. Which is bullshit, because it's like the, you know, the cat doesn't like, you know, the cat doesn't like him, and they begin with, keeps, like, you know, being introduced into scenes through, like, just jump scares and Mm -hmm. really, like, wow, like, bad Foley work. Yeah, but it looks like a perfectly good cat. It's very sweet. I mean, obviously, when it's upset, it's upset for reasons, because Lewis manhandles it and doesn't treat it right. Like, this is essentially a story about how to be a good pet owner. I don't believe this. You stay, Church. Hold on a second. God, he chewed his way out. Jesus, blood in Christ. So. <laughs> is that what this story is about? It's called yeah. pets. It's called Pet Cemetery. I've spent I, I I've spent the entire time trying to figure out like what the hell this movie is about. Um, sometimes dead is better. <laughs> what does that mean? The ground's gone silent. Like that doesn't make any sense. I it's, it's the weird. It's like fear of death and trauma and like letting things go. And like they kind of mention this in the film, like you know of like a sense of like you know um, you know. Like the, like I think Judd like mentions like the, the importance of death and as like a as like a as a calming thing and then still um, yeah I don't know it's kind of because like all, like I said there, there's so, like a, a lot of the characters in the, in the relationships are kind of like it's very strange because like scenes and subplots were just completely like ex- I mean Stephen King himself reportedly wrote the screen you know book and screenplay and I guess just went through with just you know just tearing out books and like here's your script. Because it's like there's a lot of stuff that we uh, that kind of like the characters don't change, but like the scene, you know, all the scenes that kind of set them up in the book uh, aren't there. Yeah, I think Stephen King has always had a problem with being extremely heavy handed with his work and also with his dialogue referencing a lot of this personal trauma that's exposed in this exposition and background and divorcing that with his script in this is completely mind boggling because there's scenes where they're supposedly having a fight and you don't even know what the fight is about or if there is a fight. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. But if anything does happen while he's under the gas, now it's a one in a thousand shot, but it does happen. You explain it to her. Because, again, the acting is pretty 
you know, yeah, our, subpar on the pack part of the male lead. So. Yeah, our two leads aren't. Yeah, it's kind of the, our male lead doesn't does isn't able to do much, and uh, Denise Crosby isn't isn't really given shit to do with other than just kind of like like be the upset like housewife housewife and mother and wear like late eighties uh, professional women's suits. Well, she crushes that Rachel story, but it's also a completely insane story. So yeah, that doesn't really. I mean that. And this is something that I've noticed a lot with these sorts of adaptations, which is if you are telling a story in a book, you can manipulate the pace and emotion in certain ways that you don't get from a film portrayal of the same thing. And so you can have a character be, you know, confused, listless, you know, Mm -hmm. dazed, overwhelmed. And in a movie, they just look bored. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of those scenes where this story is absolutely bonkers this is nuts yeah this doesn't make any sense and it's shot really weird and kind of different from the um i will say this the film is shot very well the acting is bleh but the the visuals are great yeah the visuals are great but i'd also add in that of course this is directed by mary lambert and this is her first film project whereas she was most famous before for doing music videos specifically for madonna including like a virgin so I don't under I don't necessarily think that her ability to reshoot scenes to make them more emotional or more, more carrying across what the actual scenes trying to portray was very easy for her, much less. And I think that she was also pushed on production. I think they were trying to get this movie shot as quickly as possible. Have you ever seen The Keep? Mm-mm. Never have. The, well, let me think. I guess I'd, I'd prefer to use The Keep, but I guess I can also use The Shining. There's a certain way you can bring about a certain feeling, a certain mood, and drag people into a certain mental space. Uh, The TV show Hannibal was extraordinarily good at this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way that this particular movie is shot, it really doesn't do that. And I think part of it is the way it's edited, which is that it's very straightforward, it's very mundane, and it doesn't have that sort of long, hanging moment where you kind of feel yourself almost drifting off into a hypnagogic state that you do with The Shining Mm -hmm. because it feels so ordinary and pedestrian and pedestrian in some cases fairly literally yeah (laughs) that it really doesn't do a great job of sort of taking you into this weird space Uh, and I I find that interesting um, I would say because it's similar to a music video where things just kind of happen and yeah. you just kind of go with it because it's like a dream. Right. The, but the way this movie is shot, it feels like, oh, here's some shit that happened. And it's like a TV kind of, movie or like yeah. a lifetime special. It's it's definitely got that air to it where you're just watching something versus feeling actually in the movie or with the characters. So when it tries to jump into that weird liminal space, it doesn't really come across very effectively because we've been hanging out in Realityville and we haven't really had the chance to sort of make that transition into Spooky Town. Mm-hmm. Oh, they have an Oz reference in there? Yes. Yeah, that's Stephen King for you. There we go. Alright, let's get repositioned. And and we're back. Alright, uh, let's see. Let's pick back up to where we were. Um, where, where were we? Like, talking about the cat and like Thanksgiving? Yeah, the church, like the church, uh, church, unfortunately died, came back from the dead, was a pretty much normal cat, except he smelled a lot. And uh, I think it's important to mention that church and Pax cow were both killed by trucks. Everything is killed by a truck in this movie, mm-hmm. with the exception of 
the supernatural horror. Yeah. Well, and the trucks, which are ostensibly this positive force in American commerce, have actually had a tremendously detrimental impact on things like the environment. Yeah. And we also have the coming automation of trucks as well. So there's this whole long, complex theme running throughout this of, you know, technology and civilization marching forward. Encroaching on the natural wilderness with its many horrors. And what's more natural than a cat? Well, not mm. I guess not that cat, because that was like a British short hair. So it was like, an imported cat. Yeah, bred to Helen back. Another another class symbol, actually. Well, that's probably they, why it died. They couldn't just get an ordinary tabby. They had to get a you know fancy cat. True. Well, you can. I mean, <laughs> seems like you can find British short hairs. I mean, it's a, you know a cr- uh, across the continent for hundreds of years. But anyway. But the, yeah, that was the. Although I did have to say the um, the the exquisite foley when they find the corpse of Church frozen to the ground, the um, the painstaking the painstaking foley work put into the sound of him trying to like pull up the uh, <laughs> you know the corpse of the cat off of the uh, off of the frozen ground was extricating it from the grass and the yeah. dead leaves. Which leads to one of the more incoherent statements in the movie from the good Dr. Creed where he says, I'm not sure if he was dead. I'm not a vet. No, motherfucker, you're a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. You should be able to crack this case. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Especially considering he knows Lewis is dead before like, he wakes up and spits in his face and he's still breathing. You know? I would think that a doctor would be able to figure out if a cat is fucking dead or not. Like, yeah. this is not that... It's that's, not rocket science. Is yeah. that in the book? Yeah, it's yes, like, it's you know, in the book. It's I'm getting, for line. Like, this movie is starting to piss me off. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, rigor mortis is a thing among most uh, living things, or formerly <laughs> living things, so it's kind of like, it doesn't really set in until, uh, anyway... So anyway, so yeah, we lose poor Church, who it's uh, it should be mentioned is well, and, and I won't spoil it. Uh, please continue. <laughs> Let's just say Church is is a, is a good kitty. He's not really a good kitty, but he's just a good kitty. All right, so we fast forward into this idyllic lifestyle where they're all having a picnic. There's some kite flying going on. The most yeah, the most scenic of like hilariously over the top, like pastoral. And it's intercut with scenes of a truck driver listening to the Ramones. Sheena was a punk rocker, driving very, very fast. And they keep going back and forth. And you know what that means in a movie. Oncoming death and uh, people like intercutting, I guess. Yeah. I'm pretty sure he was hauling oranges. It's a Rinko. They're hauling wood or paper or what is it? Oh, paper, yeah. Ruined my movie death reference for sure. Oh, I'm sorry. Hauling oranges? Yeah. Oranges are a symbol of death in film. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I thought they were, but they're no, they're only a, they're only a, a is that Godfather two. It's only like it's, 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 movies, no. yeah. it's only in Godfather's. There, you know, it's, is, are they the orange is a symbol of death? It's not just Godfather. It's it's spread. It's a meme. Um, so we are watching this lovely scenic pastoral event where Lewis is flying a kite with Gage, and he drops the drops the uh, the, the, the spool the spool of twine or mm-hmm. kite string or whatever it is and like and this is they they have obviously been living in this house for months as we see the you know the tra- the market the transition of the seasons even though it's very obviously they shot it in the summer like you know just she just pulled you know uh, Ellie the daughter just pulls down um pulls down a, a paper pumpkin and puts mm-hmm. up a, a a a turkey so I guess it's like look look folks time is passing even though it's uh it is not obvious. 
but yeah, they, but they live out there, and of course, the, yeah, they they are you know mere yards away from them, you know, a massive uh, vehicular damage, you know, danger that's you know, like I said, has killed animals again. You know, one no one who's actually lived there forever, I guess, has ever thought to like put like a fence up or anything. It's just no, I just that's that's the way that it is. Yeah, no, it's um, you know, every time you go over to your neighbor's house, you just stand there making sure that the trucks are not flying by, which is actually what Lewis does at the very climax of the film. There's a point where he just stands at the side of the road waiting for a truck to pass. And it's like, all right, well, okay, that that's, uh, that's great. Let's just reiterate that theme over and over again, that you're living next to this road. Okay. So anyway. God pounds his nails. Gage, unfortunately, as most children do, has a death wish and goes straight for the road in chasing a kite that's nowhere in frame or scene and is obviously hit by the truck. Yeah, there's a literal, there's a, uh, one of the few films that has a literal death drive, both, uh, I guess, both literal and figurative. Yeah, Gage has the Thanatos drive already, if we're talking Freud. So, um, as in the book, his little shoe flies in the air and hits the ground, and then we cut to the family mourning in the most impossibly understandable way i don't know well don't don't forget the photos we got to get those photos in there too oh yeah he was looking at all the childhood photos yeah well no there's the fade to whites between the photos too. Mm-hmm. just to make sure that you understand that like life lost and yeah yeah well that's keying into like i was telling in the book there is this whole long protracted scene where or not scene but like cut of the fact that like he's thinking about how Gage would have grown up to be an Olympic athlete and like gone to college and then got married and like have his own kids and stuff and like that's right before you know of course the shoe flies so it's like this whole like drawn out like thing where he's thinking about his son's life and how it was abruptly cut short yeah the timeline was severed you know it's got me just a little bit and knowing Stephen King alternate realities that reality probably happened boo there you go boo Dumb. Get used to it. I, I'm going to be an interesting contributor on this one because I think a lot of the stuff that Stephen King does is really dumb. Looking we at all you, do. Dark Tower. No, oh, yeah, he does have his tropes. Some are some are effective. Some um, are a bit um, trite. Mm-hmm. Well, what I find confusing about him though is <coughs> I find him really inconsistent in terms of themes. And one of the reasons why I like The Shining film as much as I do is because I feel like there is a coherent logic uh, line underneath it. And I'm not saying that I necessarily understand the... Indian burial grounds? Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's something that I guess these films have in common. But more so than that, there are themes of, you know, patriarchal obsession and, you know domestic abuse and the feeling of the need to provide and alcoholism and all these ideas that run throughout this and I can see how they come together in a way even if I can't necessarily articulate it coherently of how these ideas combine to basically create the tragedy that occurs in the last act of The Shining whereas here it's really difficult for me to make make connections between why one thing happens and another thing happens and i can understand logically that this film is about respecting the finality of death but that doesn't really mean anything to me all right it's the crackling energy of my hot take 
It, it's a really hot take. I think you're talking about the fact that a lot of his work is self-referential and the the patriarchy is him and he is expressing this understanding of how being a father or being a man is, you know, extricated into these ideas of horror and supernatural. And in this movie, it's largely just here we have a really interesting concept. Let's take it to the next level, but not really explore the underlying like psycho psychology of, you know, what is going on. And it's also hard for me to make a connection because I can understand the idea of working in a hotel by myself or with my family in the winter. Mm-hmm. Like that's a concept I can wrap my head around. But the idea of taking my cat up to an Indian burial ground because my weird neighbor tells me to, like that's kind of a long walk. It is. And it's hard for me to get to that point logically. And yeah. I can understand the desire to do so if I lost something that was precious to me. But it's just such a, a weirdly specific alien concept that you have to basically lay so much ground to get there that by the time we do, just thematically speaking, I'm completely cold. Exactly. Like, there's no psychological degradation that happens with that main character that you see, especially in the movie because he's so in- unable to act and so wooden that by the time that it happens, you're just like, this is just happening. It's not something right. internally motivated or driven. Yeah. Well, I don't know if he's necessarily unable to act, or at least it's whatever his uh, acting skill was that was not, I don't think it was necessarily brought out that well. But like I said, he doesn't really have much of an emotional arc in the film because he's kind of like like really blank and unaffected in a slightly positive way beforehand. And then near the end, he's kind of like blank and unaffected unaffected rather Mm -hmm. but only like leaning negative until he like he gets the more like crying bits i guess yeah i think that's like the main thing where he was talking about uh, or judd says a man's heart is stonier than the soil or whatever i think it's trying to say like yeah you're you you have these deep secrets but you never reveal them and you never like emotionally put them out what what secrets you don't have any secrets i know he doesn't have any i don't understand so I have to reread the book. Apparently, maybe he had some like secret affair or some childhood trauma that caused him to do that. But most of it's focused on his wife and Zelda. We can talk about the Zelda subplot, I think, right? Um, well, let's continue on because so we're where were we? It's the um... Gage just died. Okay, and we can talk about how you know Judge shows up and is like, Mister Starch, I know what you're thinking. Who are you? I came to talk you out of it. You need to just accept that your son is dead. Not try to bring him back. Bring him back? What what are you talking about? I know you're thinking of putting him up there. The Indian burial ground up that rod. You're thinking if you bury his body there, it will come back to life. But sometimes, dead is better. Indian burial ground? It's been done before, what you're thinking of. The Nelson boy, back in 85. You're saying if I dig up my son's body and rebury him at the old Indian burial ground that I... Don't do it, Sarge. What comes out of the ground ain't the thing you put in. The Indians knew that. That's why they stopped using it when the ground went saw. I'm just here to talk you out of it. I know you're thinking it. I know you're thinking it. Maybe does better. The ground's gone sour. Or something, yes. <laughs> I'm not saying it right, but... Um, yeah, so Judd comes over while Lewis is mourning and tells him that he shouldn't ever think about burying his son in the pet cemetery or the Micmac burial ground. 
because back in the 40s... You recounts his own story of the last time to answer the question, has anyone ever uh, buried a human up there? And that human was Timmy Baderman. He died in service during World War II and was shipped back home. Was promptly buried in the Micmac burial ground. Baderman? Or Bateman or Bateman? Or, it's uh, Baderman. Yeah. It's Baderman. Bateman wouldn't be funny. Baderman is hilarious. So, yeah, he, this poor guy came back from the war, was reanimated, and apparently started terrifying the town. You know, zombie chasing around. Well, apparently terrifying the town by walking around. Yeah, just... In the book, it's much more, I think, dire. Like, he's murdering people and stuff. But in this one, it's just like he's just walking around shambling and burying a leg in the yard. You don't know who the leg comes from, and you never see any violence. Well, it, the way it's shot, it looks like he found a leg in the yard. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, it, you know, fair game, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's such a thing... Free food. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, the end, it's kind of a thing where the... Uh, the uh, you know the, the, he's so traumatized the town they decided to like not just like capture the guy but they go after him. oh anyway I'll yeah no they go to his father's house like all the men in the fo- he, like Judd's like the men in the folk got men in the town got together to figure out what we're gonna do about this and we decided we're gonna go over to the Baderman house and we're gonna burn it okay. It seems a bit of an escalation. But. It's an escalation, especially when they show up and they find that like this poor man is trying to wrestle his zombie child but you know they're having like this fight but it's not really violent yet he's just like sort of like you know tussling tussling yeah Yeah. and then they're like immediately throwing gas cans to the window and like dousing up the house and then they set it on fire while the the dad's inside being held on by his son while he's like saying something like I hate life or something. I don't remember. I can't fucking quote yeah, shit. It's, it's some line from Frankenstein, but... I love dead. Hate living. Yeah, there's... That's a bit of a clue to the one of the other many uh, references to death and life in the film. Oh, yeah. I mean, what best to do when you were talking about reanimated corpses except for to go back to Frankenstein, which this movie does prolifically. So anyway, yeah, they burn the house down. <laughs> <laughs> this is all in flashback. We're still in flashback. Yeah, mode. we're in flashback mode. Mid, mid-movie flashback. Which looks like something out of like a, a crime reenactment from the 80s, which is great. So, <laughs> Yeah, we're inter- the film is interrupted by a, 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 an, Unsolved a, a, Mysteries. Yeah, a segment from Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> all right. So anyway, um, Lewis is kind of going off the deep end. Rachel takes Ellie to Chicago to go with her parents. Lewis heads to the cemetery and proceeds to exhumes, exhume his son's body. In broad daylight. In broad daylight. Well, no, he does it at night, but he goes there during the daytime, and then he waits until nightfall. And when he's actually digging it up, it is taking place at night. It well, is. I thought it took him that long to get down six feet under, though. I was, was going to say, I think, I think he, like, he just finished at night, because well, he's one man with a, you know, digging down with a shovel. But, um, oh, we missed the talking about the funeral. The funeral was great, because... You know, yeah. it, it's basically the cutscene from Clerks. Yeah. I can't fucking believe you. I'm telling you, it wasn't my fault. You knocked the casket over, for Christ's sake. I was just leaning on it. It was an accident. Like someone knocks a casket over on purpose? So the casket fell over. Big deal. Her fucking body fell out. Well, put her back in it. It's not like it matters if she breaks something. <sighs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the thing is it's good enough here to bring up the uh, to bring up the uh, the um, um, I almost like like Tasha Yar's character, like her family. I knew something like this would happen. 
I told her when you were first married, you'll have all the grief you can stand and more, I said. And I look at this. I hope you rot in hell! Where were you when he was playing in the road? You stinking shit! You killer of Uh, Denise, uh, like her like strange family and also and like her own story, which is like used a lot, but like just kind of like dropped in the story, like here and there for like whatever reason. It doesn't really cohere. Yeah, when she's trying to, I guess, explain that she doesn't want her daughter to be exposed to death too soon or too early, she goes back into this flashback of living in this huge house with her parents and her sister, and her sister has spinal meningitis. And instead of showing an actual portrayal of this disease and the fact that it would actually kill you really quickly, they have this whole protracted weird thing where her sister is hidden in the back bedroom dying and they cast a male actor to play her because the wi- no woman was bony enough to play her. We have this male actor writhing on a bed, like completely bony and then, you know, with a really horrific ma- makeup on and this red wig and just yelling and... Rachel! <laughs> Rachel! Rachel! You know, and she's like, we just wanted her to die. We didn't want her to be free of this pain. We just wanted to be free of our pain and all this really just awful shit. It's out of nowhere. It's weird. And it becomes a major theme of the story. And I don't even understand why. Uh, yeah, it connects in, in like shorter, and like you can kind of, and then like the, yeah, there was the huge in the background you can, in, of the shots. You see like the huge portrait, huge like freaky portrait of like the young kid with like a gray cat and. Oh yeah, it's a really beautiful, horrifying folk art picture of this child in a dress with a cat that looks exactly like Church, but not. It looks like Vladislav from What We Do in the Shadows when he doesn't get the faces right. It's. It's beautiful. It's great. It's just so dumb. I can't even believe it. It occurs to me, though, thematically speaking, there's an interesting argument to be made that Rachel's bizarre relationship with her sister and how on some level she actually wanted her to die is actually presented as the inverse of the concepts in the rest of the film and that this is actually the appropriate reaction which is that we should want people to die. We should laugh when our sister dies. This is good. This is natural. This is the appropriate way forward because Rachel returns later, obviously, as a profoundly negative, toxic force. And Rachel is the one trying to stop bad things from happening. So the, is the film saying... Sometimes dead is better? Some t- not only that dead is better, but that we should do our best to speed it along. Mm, that's a different one. I don't know about that, but I do agree with you that it's saying that you should let things alone. We're, we're well. We're we are we are given but two different two different characters uh, to, um, with um, not congenital. What's the term with terminal illnesses? One being the oh, you know horrible like ghastly sister. The other one being Missy. The exists for two scenes and then takes yourself out for you know for just the hey we need we need more death to move the movie along yeah and i would say from a women's perspective this is a really good example of how women's pain is completely put under the rug and how they deal with it in a way that doesn't always cause a lot of um 
attention, right? Like Missy's way of dealing with her pain and her suffering is to remove herself because she doesn't feel valued enough. She's like, I'd never married. And she just seems like she's undervalued in general. And she puts that on herself. Whereas you have someone like Zelda who was shut away for her illness because she was quote unquote too grotesque to be seen. And you know, she has all this rage and pent-up anger about it, but she is unable to even move off of the bed. And that's why she's tormenting her sister is because she has no outlet. And she's not even tormenting her. She's just asking for help. And it's just really... that If he would have explored those themes more thoroughly, like, that would have been more interesting to me. We have three de- female deaths in the film. Yeah. We have Missy, we have Zelda, and we have, uh, spoiler alert, Rachel. Mm-hmm. So if you compare and contrast... Missy and uh, Zelda, it seems like Zelda is being portrayed as a bad way to go in the sense that she's actively fighting it, actively contesting it, making everybody else miserable. And then she comes back as part of the general haunted house material at the end, whereas Missy, comparatively speaking, gets a pretty easy out. Mm -hmm. So is the movie telling us that we should just check out sooner rather than later? Suicide is painless. Yeah. Well... I would say the uh, yeah, although I can't th- particularly think of how many uh, Stephen King novels involve euthanasia. Yeah. Um, okay, so we so we, yeah we've recounted the she gives us her flashback story, which at forty five minutes into the damn movie to finally ex- to actually explain what is sort of going on, and yet not re- it doesn't really do it that well and kind of um, you know set all that up, but yeah. So I mean. We see that Lewis unearths his son and takes him up to the Micmac burial ground while Judd slips into a beer coma after one Budweiser. Who knows why? He's the only person around, obviously, so falling asleep on his porch is the important thing to do so he doesn't see Lewis walking down the path with the dead child in his arms, which he's patting on the back like he's actually going to like comfort it or something. It's really disturbing. This movie actually is pretty horrific at the end, and I think that's probably the the lasting value of it when you watch it. Nothing's scarier than a dead child that comes back to life and starts killing people. I mean, this is about the same time as the Chucky movies where it's like, uh, Chucky, yeah, a little dull. But no, that's a real child that's actually stabbing people. So we'll get to that part, but... Both were the, both were the red hair. Yeah. And meanwhile, inexplicably, Lewis's daughter Ellie is having nightmares about Pascal or Paxcow is like Stephen King's one of his things is to take a word and to kind of mangle it in terms of how you hear it or pronounce it from a child's point of view. I mean, that's just a recurring motif, if I could be wrong, but um Red Ram. Red Ram. And then she's actually the she's seeing the ghost in her room. Her mom comes in, is not actually seeing the ghost or hearing it, but is somehow being influenced in. Right, yeah, they don't, um, the, uh, Pascal kind of, like, appears, to, well, it doesn't really appear, but definitely can't, it's, you know, is sometimes immaterial, is sometimes not, can affect both people and on objects, but not really, and depending on what the scene needs. Yeah, he even, know what, he even knows which rental car is available for her to get back to Maine when she finally lands in Boston, which is just, again, pretty interesting. So, and, uh, you know, Denise Crosby's character, Rachel, spends all of her time in the last half of the movie trying to get back to stop what? I don't know. She doesn't know. She just knows that she has to get back. 
And her daughter has like you know, daddy's gonna do something bad. Her daughter has like shining visions. Yeah, she has shining. Rachel plays the Scatman Crothers role yeah. in the third act. Well of wouldn't film. that be Judd though? Because Well no, because Scatman's trying to get to the oh, that's true. hotel. Yeah. And it's this whole arc and then there's this like hilarious payoff at the end. Well then kids I'm coming to rescue the lot of you. Oh, ow! Ugh, I'm bad at this. I was going to say, if you're reborn into a Stephen King universe, do not be the secondary elderly father figure type character that exists merely to provide exposition because you will die. Yeah. You will always die. Anyway. Um, so moving on from that, we have, yeah, then we cut to Judd. Do you guys want to explain how poor Judd goes out? So let's see. Okay, how does how does Judd go? Judd comes back and with these, uh, you know, having immediately twigged what's going on. And does he actually see the foot, the muddy footprints, or is it? No, I don't think he does. Cause yeah, he wakes up from his slumber and he has kind of a feeling and is going through his house and sees the muddy footprints going into his basement or Something. some part of the house. Yeah. yeah. Something like that, and but it goes on. Yeah, pulls off his folding knife, and you know, like I said, but this the kid comes. You know, the uh, you just hear the um, just full like you know disembodied demon laughter. Gage, come on out. I brought you something. Mm-hmm. You know, we're into uh, Judd's house. Going, you know, becomes like the, like the old. Uh, just, you know, it's, it's in, becomes full on this like haunted house mode. Terrifying giggles. Yeah, giggles and like child speaking and whatnot, and, um, yeah, walking around. You know, it's trying to find it with the with the knife out, and you know, nice big, real big close ups of his slippered feet. Uh, at least I should say the backs of his slippered feet. Where and then you know exploring around and gets a bit too close to the bed and oops you know looking under what would happen kid comes out and not only hamstrings him you know hamstrings him pretty deep and I think it then like starts feasting on his jaw yeah he gives him a Glasgow smile and then starts eating his neck it's really graphic it's great which seems like I said even uh you know we we've um. <laughs> the yeah because as they they keep saying yeah the uh, you know dead comes back and you know what com- what comes back wasn't what you put in there and but the um one thing i did want to mention about the cat coming back is that in all you know the, the cat is just like a cat yeah you know, it's supposed to be like you know an evil demon cat but it's just still kind of a cat like yeah the cat's you know he scratches the uh he scratches creed the main guy except he because creed like doesn't know how to hold a cat and I'm like, what's all the cat here? And then, you know, whatever. And, and but except the cat is still just the cat, like, hanging around. Although. It's sleeping with a little girl and it's sleeping on the chest of Rachel. So, like, I don't understand. Like, maybe just women get along with cats better than this dude, you know? Yeah. And, and, and he's, uh, his, you know, the cat's eyes glow. So that's how you know it's a replicant. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. And so, but anyway, we so. Spare ju- no expense. Yeah. The, um, spare no expense. G- um, Judd, uh, you know, Judd goes on and gets t- taken up by the kid and then. Trying to think of what happens next. Is it the Rachel flags down a trucker to get back to town because her car crashes for no reason whatsoever? Which yeah, which Pascal helpfully like yells at her from beyond that it's trying to keep you away or something. Which yeah, wait, was that when was that before or after 
uh, she was coming back and he was like trying to bury it. I can't. I'm. Mean, we're 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 getting the, some of the sequencing mixed up here, but um, I don't think you really have to worry too much about that. I think but that's yeah. around the blowout. Yeah, but the blowout is, in, and he just says, you know, it's trying to keep you away, and it's not really clear like what the it is. The pet cemetery slash Big Mac burial ground, like the omnipresent force that basically allowed packs to come back and is also reanimating these bodies is apparently intelligent on some level. But that is also contrasted by the fact that you have this really weird tree falling in the woods, almost as if it's trying to block. Well, that's the thing. Is it is it is, is it is it like as a defender or a protector or as an attractor? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever because of the fact that like when she gets there, can she do anything to actually stop it? Not really. No, she. Um, if she got there soon enough, probably if she could stop the burial from happening, right? That's true. If she found her husband with her dead son and walking down the path, I'm pretty sure she could have been like, what the fuck's wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, the, the, so we did, we did skip over the lovely scene of the kid comes back from, you know, kid, kid comes back, you know, no, now knows exactly where the, the, uh, the doctor, the doctor's bag is and you know, that there are sharp knives in there, even though like there are knives all over the house. Yeah. Dr. Lewis Creed, after burying his dead son, immediately passes out, and there is a doctor's satchel with his all of his tools and special things inside of it, even though you never see him actually be a doctor in this film besides, you know, diagnosing a dead guy as dead. Um, and a dead cat, not being able to do that. Um, so he, yeah, like, Gage comes in, and he is, like, a small adult. He's perfectly fine in pulling out the scalpel from this bag and not stabbing himself in the eye with it. And that's when he goes over to Judd and, you know, yeah. does his dirty. Yeah, he, yeah you know, he somehow has gained more knowledge and also, like, a lot more coordination than, like, a like a toddler. Yeah, because that kid was, like, 18 months old when he shot the film. Like, that's almost, that's not even, wow, yeah, that's very young. Yeah. I could have murdered someone at 18 months, I'm very confident. I believe you. I've got what it takes. It's interesting to contrast Judd's going through the house and encountering the kid scene to dr creed's encounter and as much as with judd i was like oh shit this is scary like i'm spooked out here like, yeah something might happen and i think part of that is just the fact that he is a secondary character who could actually die obviously at... he's going to die well i mean i don't know like that's that's what's interesting about it which is you have that uncertainty there's a question in the film you genuinely don't know mm -hmm. whereas First of all, when Dr. Creed comes up there, like you have to be fairly talented as a as a filmmaker to convince people that your main character might die. Now, don't skip Rachel though, because we need to talk about Rachel before before Lewis. Okay, yeah, fair Sorry. enough. Sorry. Yeah. Because we need to juxtapose. Right. So she get Well, and that I would say that that was also a fairly decent sequence. Although, yeah. I mean, they try to shoot around the kid as best they can, but I mean, part of the reason why there aren't more spooky kids going around stabbing people in movies is because it's really hard to... Suspension of disbelief, man. They don't look that scary. Yeah. Well, I mean, they could look that scary if you were actually able to let them go through that acting, but, like, there are rules about how, what you can portray kids doing, and so, like, there's a 
scene when the hamstring is cut, yeah. you know, it's just like an obvious doll's hand. Yeah. yeah. Everything with, uh, I mean, they shot, was, they, they shot the majority of the kid scenes, with, the demon kid scenes with like, you know, with obvious dolls, which is why you're not getting clear shots. So. Yeah, mm-hmm. it really doesn't work. Well, I don't know. Did, he, did they have a real child, like, biting on the neck of Gwen or whatever? No. Some of that stuff is cut pretty quick, yeah. so it wasn't hard for me to, uh, so it was just hard for me Just make the to, vampire... Yeah, yeah, but uh, some like particularly there's some some of the more aggressive stuff where it just really doesn't read very well at all. Right. Okay. So okay. anyway, so yeah, so um Rachel the you know the like I said the, you can make it there's an entire like you know different movie of like, just the travail much like in home movie in uh, in home movies in home alone there's an entire separate movie of the um the um the worried uh you know, mother and wife trying to get home, you know, going through her own travels of trying to get home. But instead of, uh, you know, improving scenes in the back of a van with John Candy. Now tell me, have you ever gone on vacation and left your child home? No. no. But I did leave one at a funeral parlor once. Yeah, it was, uh, it was terrible, too. You know, I was all distraught and everything, you know, the wife and I. We left a the little tyke there in the funeral parlor all day all day you know we went back at night when you know when we came to our senses and there he was apparently he was there alone all day with a corpse now he was okay you know after six seven weeks and i came around started talking again uh, but he's okay you know they get over it kids are resilient like that we have a couple scenes of just you know of, uh denise crosby you know running through airports um you know, getting supernatural help to uh, to to catch the plane back to back to Maine, and uh, Pasco helping her out of the rental desk, as we mentioned, with a lovely scene where, with a um, happily, you know, I, I do like the uh, the rental car agents kind of like you know blinking in and out of uh, in and out of lucidity. It's been very busy. I really don't have anything. What about the Aries K, the one with the scratch on its side? I do have an Aries K. But it came in rather beat up, and there's a long scrape up one side. I'll take it. Like how, you know, and, and, and ne- but never actually say, you know, I don't. How do I know that? That kind of a thing, which I was, I thought that was a nice touch. And, and but yeah, Rachel, uh, Rachel gets a catches a lift with a trucker with a strangely out of place, like still kind of a trucker, you know, like you know, good old boy accent, but not. Oh, for let's Maine. not forget he has six 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 on the side of his truck yeah. when she gets well, in. Let's not also forget, and I found this to be one of the genuinely interesting little moments in the film. That the truck that she gets a ride in is the same company as the truck that killed her kid. That's the only truck that rides on that road. Apparently, yeah, that's the, well, they, I mean, they're just on the they're just down the road from the paper mill. Well, so, I mean, I find that I find that fascinating. Mill. It's just this idea that capitalism is just such a so endemic that there's only one company in one area. And but not only that, that they can literally kill your child, and you think nothing of just catching a ride with them. That's w- very true. When you get back into town. Because what are you going to do? She you should have been triggered by that truck. I would. Yeah, you can't fight it. You just have to accept it if you want to get anything done. The vehicle which caused her own destruction is the one that she rides back to the source of her pain. Yeah, and the trucks don't care. They just keep going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the only time in the entire film that we see the truck like slowing down, aside from the site, you know, aside from the, like, the early accident scene, is just is the when you know she gets picked up outside of a <laughs> when lobster. She's hitchhiking. Jo- she's hitchhiking, you know, outside, you know, in her fully professional gear outside of a um, 
you know, outside of a lobster shack called named George's. Yeah. Yeah, because they'll obviously slow down way ahead for a woman, but not for, you know, a child. The lobster also having obvious class associations. Yeah. yeah. Poor people food at one point. Now it's rich people food. It's a leftist podcast now. Mm-hmm. I'll pay whatever price for lobster. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, so Rachel gets back. And she doesn't go back to her house. She goes back to her house, but then she finds it empty. Or I'm trying to think of like how she. No, she she hears the she hears her sister. That's what she, oh, she, no, she hears, she hears sister. Her, her sister call her. Rachel. Like From a, Judd's house. Yeah, with, like again because the whole like you know um, reincarnated sister thing, which is awkward because it's kind of like it's it's it's, it's, a, yeah, it's kind of a thing where the um it's one of the things that i think the movie really kind of fell down about because it doesn't really connect that yeah bad things come back but doesn't really connect that it's the that like you know the sister was you know was actually this hor- this super beca- became or was the supernatural horror thing somehow and like is now back yeah it's a common motif in stephen king to use your past trauma as a, a vehicle for your own terror and fear but it's not t- telegraphed well enough in the film because there's that one painting but you're you know if it's a blink and you miss it kind of moment because you're focused on the ghost and stuff like that so or, yeah or the or the actress in the foreground yeah mm-hmm. but again though i do want to emphasize that zelda was somebody who very much did not want to die and so the film is in a strange way presenting this as a bad thing because she is now a representative of these more malevolent forces she was waiting on the other side to come back yeah what i think right i mean she kind of says that out of gage's mouth it's like me and gage are gonna play with you now and we've been waiting for you and um so yeah so she comes back and i guess that you know is kind of taken care of off screen yeah, they don't actually show really how she dies, except for she reaches down to hug Gage, and he obviously has a scalpel in his hand. I brought but... you something, Mommy. I brought you something, Mommy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she kind of like, and it's almost like it's almost like through grief or madness or something, like she just you know knows that he, yeah he's hold you know he's holding aloft a bloody scalpel, and it's almost like she you know just gives in to like the guilt or the grief or or just winds up just yeah I'm just kind of. You know, commit suicide by demon possessed kid. Yeah, as soon as you see your dead child, you have no self preservation instinct at all. So conveniently, she's gone, and then. So now we're back to Lewis what, waking up. Yeah. In the morning, right? I mean. Hey, it's he he he. You know, it's it's hard work. He dug a grave and he yeah. dug a grave. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard work, and he gets a call from Rachel's dad, who's like, "Did she show up?" how is she doing and he's like oh she came back and then he's starting to put the pieces together yeah and it's yeah rachel's parents of quinn you know because which they do uh, really get into how screwed up her family was but again it's one of those things where like we're like, like there's you know we're, we're missing it's like we gotta be missing like 30 pages of like dialogue out of a book or something actually oh yeah of like you know why the parents are like that angry at him and like on you know i you know i knew when she married you she would it would come to this thing and like the whole fight at the funeral and yeah if there's one thing that parents hate to see their daughters get married to, it's successful doctors. Yeah, you know, we really hate those. We really, like, I'm sure my parents would really hate it if he could buy me a house <laughs> in fucking Maine and, like, support me so that I'm to fucking work and have a, have you hugged your MD yet today? Stick yeah. her on the back of this car. Drive around, drive around a nice uh, 1988 um, uh, super, uh, station wagon. So... 
So yeah, Doctor. Ooh. So Doctor. Your Doctor Creed wakes up, knows something. He, he sees his sees his doctor bag and scalpel because I guess he also makes like how maybe he like does he he works at the university yet he has a doctor's bag as if he makes house visits. Yeah, it's quite strange. House even calls. though there's not really even a hospital in that wing of the university either, it was just sort of like a room. And like a small clinic, yeah. He's got a lovely connection, collection of drugs in there, enough to put down a small child, even. And a cat. And a cat. And a cat, yeah. So let's talk about that scene, because he decides to load up a couple syringes. He already knows what he's facing, because uh, he reasons. Yeah. And he's like, well, he also said in the great, in you know, that he if if something went wrong, that he would just put him to sleep while he was digging up his son. He was having a hysterical moment where he's talking to himself for exposition reasons. Yeah. So good thing he was. Yeah, good thing he was reproaching <laughs> reproaching himself aloud. Yeah, good for us. So he takes over a full, beautiful raw steak, and and the, of course, Church is outside of the house, yowling at him with the lit up eyes because you know, demon cat. The uh, tapetum lucidum is what that's called. It's the hits the light. Um, anyway, um, yeah, the re- the rear of the cat retina is highly reflective. Yeah. So he. It's actually Satan, but good guess, you guys. Well, well yeah, I know that's true too. They're, they they go hand in hand. Yeah. Throws him the steak. So this poor cat, just chomping on the steak, and he's like, just it's Thanksgiving for cats. Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats. But only if they came back from the dead. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent line. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, at first, I was like, "Did he poison the steak?" Because it's actually halfway as clever. Or no, he could... he, t- he just distracts the cat so that he can grab it and then inject it in the most heartbreaking, horrifying scene as a cat lover. Like, I am seriously in tears watching this because I am thinking of my baby and like him just shoving this syringe in this cat, and then they got this cat drugged up enough that he just lied on the ground and was just, like, blinking at them, just like, my poor Mimi. I was also in tears, but mostly because of the waste of the steak. <laughs> Which, like I said, it's an, it's an odd scene, and it's really, like, unnecessarily kind of, it's like, okay, just, like, poison the steak. Throw the steak in the road, where we've already seen, you know, it's already, like, a, you know, the death vector, and would plan to the rest of the film, but no, he, he has just to distract the cat and then like awkwardly grab it and chase it and and then shove a syringe inside yeah. of it. So it's and then so that that deed that deed being done, he goes into the house to confront. This is arguably the first time we've actually seen him do any doctoring, right? Yeah. Well, I think he he sort of like and he sort of examined the um, he sort of examined uh, Pascal's like corpse. He doesn't even do that, though. He just sort of hangs out. He's like, yep, this guy's definitely going to die. And then yeah. we just cut to him being dead. And it's like, oh, shh. Yeah, the, yeah okay. that's the thing, which is the, full, the scene that's, you know, the scene that's straight out of American Werewolf in London. Yeah. David! What? Now, I'm really sorry to be upsetting you, but I have to warn you. Warn me? We were attacked by a werewolf. I'm not listening to this. On the moors. We were attacked by a lycanthrope. Of like the corpse, you know, coming like, or corpse or near corpse, kind of like warning the, uh, warning the protagonist. Yeah, the harbinger, the harbinger doom. There, yeah, the, the film has more than a few references to. I mean, you got everything other from, movies. Uh, yeah, I mean, you got everything from like Psycho to The Shining in this thing. So, 
So, yeah, Lewis goes into Judd's house to search. He immediately gets a vision of a warped, distorted house where it's like it's rotting. It's gone inside. sour. Yeah, the ground's gone sour. There's mm. moss, fungi on the walls, that kind of thing. And then it immediately disappears and he's back in Judd's house. And being... the, the idea of living in a house where a housekeeper hasn't been working is very disturbing to him. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, his his housekeeper did kill him kill themselves yeah. so and um i was gonna say just the, 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 the yeah, we talked about yeah there's only like th- um like three women death you know three female character deaths in here two of them are by hanging because if you notice what happens when he uh as he's investigating the house what he finds yeah rachel's corpse falls out of the attic and is swinging and hanging from it the, from a noose yeah yeah engages up in the attic laughing at him and then jumps down with the scalpel and starts stabbing him. It's a scene the fall out of like Child's Play 3. Yeah, it's the only, it's like, it's the suspension of disbelief moment where you see this guy fighting with a doll and you're like, oh, well that's not as scary as I thought it was because... You know, the kid walking around with a scalpel is scarier, mostly because you're worried about him poking his eye out. Yeah, and this point, yeah, Gage is because like it's been really like fully possessed because now Gage somehow has like red hair mm-hmm. and like the velvet, like the velveteen cover. Even though it's it's kind of a thing where it's it, you can kind of see what they're trying to do, but it's not really communicated all that. Like I think there would have been like better ways to do that. But yeah, it's supposed to look like a Victorian child, which is not really make any sense considering that this is the 80s but well, well yeah but it's, she's he's supposed to be zelda because like you know that's how yeah, she was but, dressed in the, the portrait were, too, were, they but, dr- were they dressing her like that in the 1960s or whatever i mean i'm just imagining them dressed up like a fancy lad looking in a lolly yeah it pretty much looked like that and so we have the 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 the, the climactic scene where you know after being stabbed repeatedly slashed repeatedly by this child with a scalpel the child just stands there and takes it as he, you know, pulls out his second syringe because the first one clattered down the stairs and just shoves it in his son's neck. Yeah, and like the aorta. Yeah. And has this, like, whole protracted long moment where he's like, I'm killing my already dead child that killed my wife and my best friend, you know. That I, that I brought, myself brought back to life yeah. that I was already planning on, you know, that I would have to, like, you know, take it out again. Long shots on this little kid reacting to being stabbed, which yeah, just, is like, it's up there with the cat. It's, and just babbling that it's not fair. It's not fair. No fair. No fair. No fair. So, yeah, that's the end of the movie. Yeah. It's not the end end. Of the no, movie, it's not right? the end end. Yeah. But, you know, it's like the end end when it comes to horror movies. You always have the end and then you have the yeah, end end. The stinger. Yeah, he. Yeah, we have. So, Doctor, uh, the climax, I guess, having done, he, you know, goes once again. You know, because it's 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 like poetry; it rhymes. He goes and gets the uh, the petrol cans, douses the house, and this lovely, uh, lovely vintage organ in the living room. Um, Did not deserve to die. Yeah, torches the whole place, and you know, of course, the good thing is like you can see like the little like the, you know the trail of gasoline everywhere, and it even goes over. And it very quickly catches the doll, you know, the doll corpse on fire. Like he spent extra, you know, extra time uh, making sure that thing was soaking through, and he walks out. You know, does the you know as you said, does the corpse carry? It's the, called the bridal carry. The bridal carry, yeah. The cause he wants like, to fuck the corpse. Yeah, it's because we're, we're back in Frankenstein again. So we so he now he knows to go, you know, revivify his wife. 
and uh, and you know in a scene that actually you know does have the uh, Dave Regeer um, Frankenstein uh, lightning lightning clashes. Yeah, there's clashes. actually lightning striking on the McMack burial ground, and then you sh- you cut to Lewis sitting in his kitchen, all fucked up, playing solitaire because of course that's what was in the book for some reason. And well, he's know, on his own. Yeah, he's on his own. Oh yeah. The, oh god. Oh my god. Right. Solitaire game for one. Hit me over the head right now. It's just, it's, Stephen King is a subtle uh, filmmaker, and this is a, this is a subtle subtle writer. A, subtle as well. writer. Yeah. He's yeah. A, you know. And so then you see the you know the hand come around the door, the fingers covered in dirt, and then she you know comes in. He's like, "Hello, darling," and. Her like left side of her face is completely fucked up and draining fluid. Yeah. And then he's like so happy to see her and he goes and he kisses her. It's like the most disgusting kiss you've ever gonna see. Like I said, he wanted to fuck the corpse. It was like it's it's canon. Yeah, it's something out of a Hellblazer comic. This is really hypocritical coming from you of all people, because I remember you posting on Twitter about how you were tired of men being judgmental about romance and smooches in, in entertainment. I'm not being judgmental. I'm just uh, saying... You just he, called it disgusting. He has I don't a, know. He has like, a kink. Is, it's disgusting to view as an audience, yeah, but I'm saying that this is kind of sweet and, and, you know, it's bittersweet in the sense that, you know, this is his wife who he loves and he was responsible for her death, but, like, he really still wants her. He, like... Really just, like, kind of went the ultimate limit to, like, keep her alive. Finally, we have a positive portrayal of a man who isn't judging a woman by her appearances, and you're attacking him for it. That is... That is, not, I'm shocked to hear it from I'm you. I'm sorry, of all people, I did not Natasha. mean to kink shame Dr. Lewis Creed for his obvious monster fucking needs. There we go. All right, so yeah, he definitely wants to bone his wife with the cranial <laughs> fluid leaking down her face. It's even part of their kiss. And then, of course, she picks up a knife, and it cuts to black, and his screams. So, yeah. With And, and the Ramones played the title, uh, the titular theme over the end credits. Yep, and a good form of trivia for that is that, you know, Stephen King loved the Ramones and included a lot of his songs in his books, and they actually wrote that song for him because of that. Picture this as an MTV contest for the future. You win the graveyard where the Ramones are buried. Or better still, you win the graveyard where the Ramones are buried alive! Uh, here's more. Why were the Ramones getting lowered into a grave? Well, because horror novelist Stephen King wanted it that way. Well, sort of. You see, the Ramones were shooting the video for Pet Cemetery, their title song for the movie version of King's bestseller. King personally requested the Ramones do the track. In fact, he's such a big Ramones fan, you'll even find the band mentioned in the book. There's a part when uh, the character checks into a hotel under the surname of Dee Dee uh, Ramone, right? <laughs> and um, and then there's he turns on the radio and they're playing Rockaway Beach. And before he buries somebody, uh, he goes in a pickup pickup truck too. Yeah. You can't say, yeah. "Hey, well, let's go before they bury people." Where's my lady with the dog? Look somber. Look down at the grave. Stop the flowers. What's the plot here? What's the, what's What's the plot? Okay, if plot details are too much to ask, well then, who are all these people? We're coming up from hell, you know, and we're going to like... Uh, He's being embalmed. <laughs> I play the drunk cowboy. <laughs> I'm the mortician. I'm going to measure the Ramones for their coffins. I'm the maximus mani mono momi momi ma. I'm going to be a normal, sexy housewife dusting a tombstone. 
It's good to be working, you know, like after 15 years, the Ramones are still together, still friends and still happening. Yeah. And I think we're doing better than ever. And the latest generation of Ramones fans seems to agree. Well, I think they're awesome. <laughs> they're great. I love their songs. And what about the new song? Great. I love it. But my favorite song still, Rock and Roll High School, since I was I young. Speaking of getting older, it's been 10 years since Rock and Roll High School. But video director Bill Fishman, who goes way back with the Ramones, says they haven't changed a bit. Exactly the same. Happy go lucky guys. They show up at the video saying, when can we go home? <laughs> Absolutely the same. You know, let's go. it goes to show that as much as your idols love you, you love your idols, that kind of thing. Like, there's, there's definitely always room for collaboration with your, with your gods. And there we go. And there, that is a rough summary of Pet Cemetery. Now it's time for collect. Well, I should say uncollected thoughts, um, observations you had uh, that you wanted to bring up that we haven't, we haven't, that we have yet to actually cover. I find this film really frustrating. Speaking of mistakes past, because I think part of the issue is it is a movie that was shot in the '80s, so you have a certain amount of things that you have to have in a movie like that. Like, you have to have a blandly handsome leading man, and you're not so concerned about whether or not he can actually act, but you gotta get those butts in the seats. And you gotta have a big name to draw in the people, so you get, you're gonna adapt to Stephen King thing, whether or not you actually give a shit about the material. So, things like themes and motifs and strong visuals are less important than really sort of getting that name on there. And since it's Stephen King, he's going to have a lot of influence over the script. And since it is a movie, it needs to come in around, you know, 90 to 120 minutes. So Right, feature length. That means that... And this is something that's really struck me, because I was watching uh, the Godfather movies last year, and they feel really herky-jerky in places. And I realize this is blasphemous to your series, Cinephiles, but I don't give a shit. Those movies are weirdly paced, and I think one of the fascinating things about prestige television mm -hmm. is that you really get a sense of how things can really expand when they're allowed to breathe. And this movie feels very, very, very abrupt in a lot of ways to me. Like, even the scene where Gage dies which I would argue is one of the more effective moments in the film, still feels like they're like, oh shit, we've only got like a minute 30 to get this out, so we've got to cut this hard. Whereas I'm imagining like if it's a Breaking Bad opening and they spend like five minutes really just kind of stretching that out and just really letting you feel that and letting the kite get away and just sort of gradually dragging you in, you would be able to get like a much more intense, effective, emotional experience out of it. It's funny you mentioned Prestige TV because this the film came out in like 1989, which is also about the same time that the previous generation's version of uh, Prestige TV, which was like the, St the Stephen King miniseries, started showing up. Because you <laughs> mm -hmm. had, I think, what it was 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 it like two? I can't remember how many nights it. There was at least two TV movies worth of it. I'm pretty sure it was before 1989, though. Right? But it was it was between 89 and 90. Well, the book itself was yeah, it's earlier, but but that was about the because I'm I think I remember it like it being like a major thing for you know for multiple nights, and then for, like that was and then later on they would do like multiple 1990. Yes, you're right. Yeah, ni ni yeah, they do like multiple of these 
you know, like this, you know, the, the premier, you know, prestige TV miniseries they've done ever since, you know, like the seventies. You know, everything from like Roots to Shogun. Um, what the fuck? You mean Seth Green was in that movie? Yeah. Hey, take the wax out of your ears, Barf Breath. Jesus Christ. He plays the nerd dude. It was, you know, it was Seth Green's only like a. Body. I never watched it. I'm sorry. He's only Seth Green is only about a year or two older than me, so. If not, in fact, like, well, Seth Green and Jonathan Brandeis, mm-hmm. and uh, and Harry Anderson playing a terrible who they uh, they let Harry Anderson improv his jokes, oh, which was a terrible, terrible mistake. Anyway, but yeah, that's kind of a thing where they they this was this film was read right about the time when they yeah they were transitioning from you know single feature, uh, you know, trying to stuff a Stephen King uh, uh, book. <laughs> of course, by the yeah, that's the thing. A lot of things going on this time. By this time, like, Stephen King was such a was such a uh, epic monster that like, he couldn't really be edited anymore. Especially in, so you get stuff like Tom, Tommy Knockers came out at this time. We call that the George Lucas disease. Yeah, and also later no, later known as the J.K. Rowling disease, mm-hmm. um, where um, so you'd have like you know like massive phone books, and uh, and how do you cram all this into like a single feature? Personally, I've watched the entire Stand miniseries, and I will stand by it as being. Stand by it. Shit. That's horrible. Okay. Um, I will continue to say that it is one of the more enjoyable things that I've ever watched and how completely batshit it is. Watch it to see Rob Lowe. Would you deaf say... Deaf and dumb. Would you say you took a up. shining to it? I would. Okay. Where, it was where? it for me. Yeah. The, um... The yeah the the stand the stand miniseries is one of those things that I still remember because that came out like if not the week within like a couple weeks of me graduating high school so I remember like that was the stuff it was like the stand and the crow and mm-hmm. a couple other things were all like the like big things from like May of ninety four which is when I graduated high school and uh, before you know heading off to Ann Arbor and look how well the crow stands up compared to the stand. Well, just to pick a fight with myself, though, I don't think this film needed to be a TV miniseries. Like, no. this does not need to be five hours long. And from what I've heard of the book, like, it doesn't really need a Wendigo. Like, I'm a huge Wendigo fan. Yeah. I own all of his albums, but, like, it, it seems like a distraction. A lot like the shrubbery and the shining. Like, I don't really need that the story doesn't really need that well that's the thing too i think he was writing a lot of short stories and then expanding them into novels to use as novels you know like he he's a really great short story storyteller like that's one of my favorite parts about stephen king's ouvre is like he actually tells some interesting things very quickly and very coherently but when you get him into long form things start to fall apart because what he's essentially doing is he's stitching together all of these individual short stories about these individually unique characters with their own strange traumatic weird backstories and their histories and he's trying to inject this slice of life americana into it and talk about you know all of these referential things that are true to him or to the environment around him and at some point it doesn't have any kind of cohesion where you feel like you're attached to any of these characters it's like not something where you're like oh i really feel like i identify with somebody i mean i think the closest i've identified to anybody in stephen king's story is probably what's her face from misery you know just being really obsessed with the book series and really wanted to see it play out yeah i i could see things going really 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 scary if they i don't know kill kylo in episode nine or something yeah i'll turn into that yeah jj <laughs> oh, abrams will find himself tied to a bed <laughs> gosh darn it <laughs> the thing that i really respect about stephen king more than anything else is 
he has a fantastic sense of people. Yeah, he does. Assuming they're white-ish. And he also has, I think, a really spectacular sense of mood and place. Mm -hmm. Where I find him oddly weak, and I find this odd because I think like the Bachman books are actually an interesting contrast to this, is in terms of sort of larger stories, uh, symbols and ideas and concepts, and sort of an overarching thematic notion that sort of carries through that, I, I find that he's uh, shockingly shaky. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I've never been a fan of The Dark Tower, which is I don't understand what the point is. It's a fun idea, but like a lot of these sort of multidimensional things, there's not really any consideration of what it really means to live in a multiverse. It's just an opportunity for cool shit to happen. I completely agree with you. genre exercise. Yeah. Yeah, it's a genre exercise. Have you ever read his original fantasy book from way back when? It's Dragon something. Eyes of the Dragon. Eyes of the Dragon. Came out in 83. Yeah, you can really easily see that he's not built for genre fantasy like that. Like he, and Dark Terror was a foray into it, but I think essentially what it was was just a, a way for him to take his ideas and his themes and you know, inject them into this world that isn't really our world, but then eventually comes back to it. So I, I love the weird, like, I'm, one of my favorite books by Stephen King is The Talisman, and it's not very well known or very well, like, um, popularized. But I, I haven't read it. It's Dark Tower-esque in the sense that there is this other reality as a flip world to our reality. So, and um, this talisman that this boy gets from his mother because she's existed in both worlds. Uh, like he goes back and forth between them, right? And there's a lot. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the many books that does a lot of like Dark Tower um, tie-ins. Um, I think the sequel to it, I think it's was a it Black House, Black House, similar, similarly, yeah, it was yeah, uh, two books that were co-written, Stephen King and Peter Straub. Yeah, Peter Straub. Stephen King was on the set a lot because his contract required it. Said, yeah, you have to film this within like 20 miles of my house. So they filmed it in bangers, which means he could just motor over for the day and just hang out on the set. So. And that's how he showed up as a minister, reading yeah. the funeral rites at Missy's funeral. With the, uh, with the with his almost like characteristic smirk on there. I'm telling you, his face just looks like that. Um, one of the, two things that one thing that I that I kept getting reminded of again tonight is that the um, it's like the only two characters who seem to actually be having fun or like enjoying what they're working on is both like just Fred Gwynn and 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 Pascal. Like Judd and Pascal are the ones who are you know Pascal more so are like having a good time and. It's kind of a thing where, like, because uh, I don't think Denise, Cro- you know, Creed, the lead, you know, he can't either can't or isn't really, um, you know, not directed that well to pull it off. And uh, Denise, Rachel, Denise Crosby's character isn't really given that much to do. So Judd has to kind of like, you know, has to like carry the rest, all of them on his back for most of the scene. And he really does bring it. So, yeah, I know Judd's the best part of us. I mean, he's iconic in his ability to pull off that main transatlantic accent mm-hmm. um it's interesting you mentioned that though because judd and pax basically carry out a very similar role in the films in as much as that they are this character who sort of has a foot in both worlds mm-hmm. somebody who understands that there is something bigger and something darker on the other side and who tries to caution the protagonist about venturing into that territory right they both warn him against it and they deliberately point it's you know they're both like both live and dead they were like examples of like they both you know both of them point as to you know what he shouldn't do and with a lot of like you know 
reverse psych- what is effectively re- reverse yeah reverse well, by pointing it out they're actually making it happen it's yeah. like it's like schrodinger's like <laughs> dead cat dead cat don't bury your son's body at the indian burial ground starch the one that's right up over there behind the anderson's barn sometimes dead is better because it's like they're they're influencing it and by influencing it they're causing more trauma Stephen King adapted this for the screen by himself he's like this I believe he's the sole said it sole credited screenwriter and <laughs> Stephen King is not the best screenwriter at all it's one of those things where it's like like it's, it's kind of a thing where like yeah the it's like it's whole, it's, if not whole scenes like there's there's just so much like like a, like a lot of like backstory and characters from the book that actually explain like why the uh, like why the characters are the way they are what other screenwriting stuff has he been responsible for? A lot, a lot. He did a lot. Um, I'm trying to think of what I mean. It, it, he, you know, he was behind. Uh, he because he so much. He famously did, hated what Kubert did to The Shining. Uh, he decided to uh, remake it in a miniseries using what was it? Was it Sci-Fi Channel or was it Network? It was I think it was like like yeah. either it was either um, Tim Daly or Steven Weber. Um, in like 1990, something like like 96, 97. This spring, go to hell and pray you get out alive. Rebecca De Mornay, Stephen Weber. Daddy's mad at mommy. Stephen King's The Shining. Uh, and this time they had they had to have the topiary animals, which mm-hmm. from all respects are the worst thing to yeah, include. Yeah, just like, yeah, real good. Yeah, the yeah, good thing you want really want those uh, PlayStation One era like visual effects in your uh, in your movie rather than you know cutting them out because they're not necessary. Um, I would point out though that Stanley Kubrick was somebody who I think probably had one of the greatest f- fundamental understandings of theme in film i mean he was somebody who when you look at his movies every single part of the movie speaks to something even if you can't necessarily explicitly articulate it there is a logic and a point to everything you see and it's it's interesting to uh contrast that i assume with the shining television version which i haven't seen but i am i just think that writers are very sometimes unable to get past their own hubris and realizing that something like film directing and film editing actually takes a lot of fucking work and that you don't have the chops to do it and that you should hire professionals that do know what they're doing and also allow them some creative space on your own work i mean but if you look at something like i mean michael Crichton is my best example i'm not a huge fan of him but like he, I'm a huge fan of his writing back in the day, but like in terms of what what he's done, he directed Westworld because nobody else would do it, and he actually like tried to learn how to do it and tried to, you know, inculcate himself in the idea of film. And I don't think Stephen King ever like lost enough of his hubris to say, you know, hey, I I should probably get some help. They're very different muscles, of course. I yeah, mean, writing versus screenwriting even yeah there's a different way of thinking about things of putting things together and i mean screenwriting is also such a nightmare because of the collaborative nature of it i mean there's that famous william golden story about working with dustin hoffman on a project and they got into a huge fight over whether or not his character should use a flashlight because hoffman was like it makes my character look like a sissy so i don't really want to do that i need my character to be a badass and so you're getting these notes that 
It's a collaborative effort. Don't necessarily help the story. I mean, ideally, if you're finding out, if you're, you know, if you're working well with people, their contributions are going to... Elevate it. Elevate it. Yeah. But right. if you have a bunch of different people with their own ideas about what they want to do, then you wind up with movies, I would argue, probably like this. Mm-hmm. I'm speculating. Or like Alien Resurrection, for example. Mm-hmm. Where you have some very, very talented cooks who are basically fighting each other over the meal. Yeah. Yeah. I think it just goes to show that you do need to be a little bit more political when you're going into something like a film project because of the fact that like you rely on everyone as parts of the the gears in the machine versus where you're writing, you're just that one person and you have maybe an editor and a publisher. I feel like if the director had been given carte blanche on this project and was allowed to do whatever she wanted, that she probably would have turned in something that was a lot stronger and something mm-hmm. that might have actually had the potential to stand the test of time, which I would argue this doesn't. Does this was a slog for me. Yeah, As it somebody is. who came into it totally cold. It's mostly just there for you to drink beer and laugh at the ground gonzawa. You know, like, that's just, like, the reason this film exists for me. But I do appreciate it because it does give me those vibes of why, like, I appreciate Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. It's, it's, a, it's a commentary on this period of film and TV that I absolutely grew up with and thought was hilarious at the time and still find hilarious now. I don't, I don't know what that is. What? I don't know what that is. Dark Place? Yeah, what is that? Go, uh, when you get a chance, go home. Uh, go on YouTube. Just look up Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Greetings, traveler. I'm Garth Marenghi, horror writer. Most of you will probably know me already from my extensive canon of chillers, including Afterbirth, in which a mutated placenta attacks Bristol. Back in the 1980s, I wrote, directed, and starred in Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, a television program so radical. So risky, so dangerous, so goddamn crazy, that the so-called powers that be became too scared to show it and jit me, much in the same way that women have done ever since they sniffed out my mummy. Is that like Black Mirror? No, it's a British comedy show that was produced by several people that are really big in the scene now, you know, like you have Richard Iotti. So it is like Black Mirror. No, it's not. It sounds like Black It's Mirror. a comedy. It's a comedy. Black Mirror is a comedy. I, the closest no, analog no. for me is Mighty Boosh. Like, it's just, it's a sketch comedy, but it's it's based in the idea that, like... It, it, it's a deliberate piss, it's a deliberate piss take of, like, mid-80s, um, like, a horror anthology and, like, not so much Stephen King, but uh, more like Dean Kuntz. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not about to tell the immediate family of the deceased that we're going to have to burn what remains of his body in order to close the portal to another dimension. I just won't do it. This hospital's got a reputation, which I intend to keep. I've yet to see any demons on the ward, and I'm particularly observant. So go back to your lab and make me a pill that can cure madness, or I'll kick your ass so hard you'll be able to build a pool in the footprint. Understood? It's because uh, way back when, when you'd have, because uh, I can remember, I was old I was old enough to be terrified and never watch them, but you had everything from, like, like you know, amazing stories or tales from the dark side or... Uh, Ray Bradbury Theater, and like I said, these are like network shows. Um, Garth, Mar- I mean, we need to do an entire episode about the Garth Marenghi. Yeah, Dark Pla- so Dark Place. he's a right. He is a writer, and then he produces and writes his own television show and stars in it, and also helps create the music. I'm Garth Marenghi, author, dreamweaver, visionary, plus actor, and. He, it's about Dark Place Hospital and sitting on a hellmouth or some bullshit. Sitting on a hellmouth. Okay. It's yeah. It, There's it's, a person that turns into broccoli, yeah. and it's it's a joke on this 
exact genre. Yeah. It's, um, but it's fucking hilarious. It's yeah, it it's excellent. It's it's Godhead, and I think the only and I think it was part of things like why Matt Holness. Uh, well, I remember reading, hearing about it a few years ago why Matt Holness never really did much else because like his experience making this was like so terrible and everything else that he just never really uh, for like the longest time he wasn't doing all that much. But you still had like Matt Barry and Rich Fulcher who mm-hmm. were in this, and they they went off and did stuff. And Richard Ayode, not only did he do you know you know do ID crowd forever, he's like you know he's a filmmaker on his own. Um, but to transition on uh, real quick, talking about other people's ideas, um, good news for everyone because it made a lot of money, and this uh, it kind of kicked the remake of of Pet Cemetery into gear. So guess what? There is going to be another one uh, coming out April of 2019. We can only hope it's just as good as the new one. Right. In this or one, old one. <laughs> yeah. In this one, uh, John Lithgow, who can probably actually play, he could, is in the Judd role, and he can probably actually pull it off. Not for while you can, monkey boy. I believe. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if we want to talk about unnecessarily bringing things back, that should probably stay dead. I can't think of any story <laughs> I've seen or read that would speak to the wisdom of that. So I say go for it. We have no original contents anymore. I mean, we're living in, you know, the post-history future or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you yeah, it's... We're looking at a guaranteed box office draw of at least $50 million. Yeah. Hey, the, uh, the, the original... <laughs> the ground has not gone sour. Hey, the original, like I said, the original of this was was a hit. They did have a sequel featuring both Anthony Edwards in his pre, in his post, in his, in his strange period where he, he, they really did try to make him a movie star. It was... <laughs> Uh, post Revenge of the Nerds, pre ER, and also, but in this time the, uh, but I think the the actual lead of Pet Cemetery Two was uh, Edward Furlong. Yeah, please tell me we're gonna watch that. Fat for the Crow Three was it? I need to. We need to watch that one. Too. Yes. Well, I don't, he didn't get. Well, it was more of like he just kind of, you know, by enough t- enough time uh, he'd gotten into enough drugs that he kind of got. Oh yeah, get, yeah. They, they had taken their effect. But yeah, the remake is being directed by. Well, it's actually filming now, being directed by Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, who both I think did um, the biggest thing they were claimed for was a film a couple of years ago called Starry Eyes. Which I do remember hearing about. Never actually saw, but I do remember hearing about on because I listened to like a couple of horror podcasts, like uh, Night of the Living podcast, which I do recommend. So yeah, guess what, folks? There is the, uh, um, you know, the, much like with uh, much like with superhero flicks and with Star Wars, we will never ever ever be without a, uh, a Stephen King adaptation. Sometime Nothing. either you know either on the air or in the offing. I mean, Castle Rock is is an active series right now. If we're doing Rex, like that is my rec. Go so. for it. Yeah, let's 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 move into recommendations and endorsements. All right, so I will recommend Castle Rock. I have not been watching a lot of TV lately because it bores the shit out of me or makes me upset. And this show did do that for me in some places, but I also really, 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 as a huge Stephen King fan, love all the Easter eggs and they're not really explicitly called out in a gimmicky way where it's just like, Oh, look at what you saw right there. They're more subtle than that. And I feel like that's kind of the better way to do it if you're going to do it. So obviously it's written by him, uh, not written by him, it produced by him. He has a lot of influence on it and there is obvious callbacks. There's Sissy Spacek for God's sake. She plays an amazing character. Um, and of course you have Bill Skarsgård who's playing a character in it and he was of course Pennywise in It last year 
But he's actually an incredible actor, and I really, really appreciated the direction that they went in the show with his character and with the general themes of Stephen King. So they definitely dip into Dark Tower territory when it comes to some of the alternative realities and the time-space warping of stuff. I'm just going to give you a general warning for that. But in the show absolutely doesn't make any sense as batshit, and there's a lot of stuff that's unexplained, but the stuff that is is pretty fun. So I highly recommend watching it. This was an interesting experience for me coming in as somebody who has a really weird and complicated relationship with Stephen King. I've only read three or four of his books, but he's been a pretty big influence on me in terms of I am really taken by the way that he by the way he explores larger themes through genre writing. And that's something that I've tried to be very conscious of in my own work. But I actually have only seen like maybe three or four Stephen King movies. So if they're like this, I think I'm probably glad that my exposure has been limited, frankly. Well, I mean, Shawshank Redemption kind of like sets the bar and then everything else kind of cascades down from there, right? Yeah. I would say Dead Zone. Which I also haven't seen. I mean, the, the, the list of Stephen King adaptations I haven't seen is, is staggering. And I would be interested to go on that journey with you guys. I would be happy to, too. Obviously, I really adore it. Yeah. As far as recommendations go, I am playing Horizon Zero Dawn right now on Twitch. Come hang out with me. Twitch.tv slash Jacob Mercy. I'm really impressed by how that's going. And it is a post-post-apocalyptic story about a young woman who hangs out with robot animals and finds coffee mugs and finds coffee mugs and i'm really really enjoying that and i would also recommend patriot on amazon i consume a ridiculous amount of media i am a deeply unhappy person because of it patriot is the first tv show in a long time that I felt genuinely passionate about. I genuinely enjoyed consuming, and I am really looking forward to the next season. It is about a CIA agent who is also a folk singer. Oh, I've heard about that. And he is also kind of incompetent, but everyone else around him is incompetent too. I got some really bad intelligence Shot an old male hotel maid who was just making the physicist's bed My evacuation team parked on the wrong street I was arrested by the secret king's police I got a fair dose of white torture Which is supposed to completely erase your sense of self But it's also a really curiously accurate portrayal of the minutia of spy work Yeah And how bad everybody involved is in it's not very pretty or glamorous it's usually pretty ugly and stupid yeah and I, i've been really really taken with it It reminds me a lot of the tv show fargo it reminds me i guess to a certain extent of burn after reading although i think it's actually better executed than burn after reading and i really i can't say enough nice things about this show that's good to hear yeah full marks awesome awesome i will recommend two things one is an album out by um a solo uh well, i don't know you know she's fronts a band uh but it's kind of um are you gonna say mitski no indie uh indie emo well mitski well mitski's first out well her not her first album but her her last album uh was definitely a, a recommendation uh a couple of years ago i remember i was well, wanted to go see when she was gonna be at the analog cafe but that show sold out um, new one's good too guys we listen to it 
the um the the album I would put out is put out by Sincere Engineer, which is best described as kind of like there's some it's a mix of like you know indie rock and a lot of emo and uh, like a little bit of post hardcore in. The album's called Rombithian, uh, with like track titles like Corn Dog Sonnet Number Seven, or you know Here's Your Two Dollars, nice. or um, you know Candle Wax, that kind of thing. There, she's out of Chicago, does a lot of great stuff. I'll play a clip from it now. The other thing I would recommend is a new is a recently released game called Donut County, done by uh, put out by Annapurna Interactive by uh, got an artist named Ben Esposito. It was kind of like you know lead designer and did smart, but you know eventually got some more help from uh, friends and cohorts on it. It's best described as um, well the the game describes itself out as a story filled physics puzzle game where you play as a hole in the ground. <laughs> and it is the strange land where um you play as a as a raccoon who has who somehow got control of a remote control hole in the ground and goes around like taking care of people's trash and then it's one of those it's all, there's a lot of a like, katamari demesi in it where as you you know if you as you you accumulate smaller things as the more there's the more things you accumulate the bigger the bigger your accumulation can get to the point where you're, you're you know you're 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 a hole in the ground that you can control is consuming like whole buildings and whatnot and it's a lot of fun it's the writing is far better than you'd expect to the point where um the character actually has like you know it's like razzing his friends over social media for example nice it is it's it is out for everything from like i think it's coming out to for switch it's on pc you can get it on your phone for like five or ten dollars like five dollars i think although i'm not sure i'm not entirely sure how much a touch thing would do it. can i borrow five dollars uh no. <laughs> well, it's, I guess uh, you must not like it that much. I'll buy it for you, Jacob. The uh, yeah, I was to say, which uh, you know, it can, hey, folks, just something you can contribute to our Patreon, and you know, we are we do have one. Um, but yes, yeah, the the other the sub description of the game is uh, meet the locals, steal their trash, and throw them in a hole. Um, available. I now. like to throw my locals in a hole. Yeah, there you go. So that is um, so yeah, those are that is our recommendations. All right. Um, Wait. One question: Would you guys recommend watching Pet Cemetery? Yes. Yes. No. Definitely. Make sure you have a beer in one hand, a joint in the other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Watch it with friends, but it is. Uh, I think it. it there. Um, uh, Fred Gwynn is great. It's kind of a thing where it was. They. It's deliberately. You know. It's almost iconic in that. You know. It's iconic. It's. It's. It, for a while, the like, kid's character shows up as like a run, almost like a running joke in like, certain episodes of South Park some years ago. That rod leads to Carnival. You want to go to South Park? You got to go down that rod. Cause I ain't never seen anyone go up that rod. Six years ago, a group of campers went up there and got lost. Had to eat each other to stay alive. Used to be the way to the O'Reilly house. He butchered over 50 children and kept their bodies in a cellar. But you should find an old bridge about halfway up. That bridge is cursed, you know. 
They built it with the bones of 200 Chinese laborers who were massacred in 34. Yeah, a lot of history on that, Rod. Uh, too, like, everything was just, the, just his particular like, accent and character. And Pascal, the ghost zombie, um, who is clearly enjoying himself most of the time, is he's a lot of fun. My new boyfriend. All right. Um, so, yes, we would recommend watching, well, at least I would, watching Pet Cemetery. Yeah, no, that, this is a mistake. This was... So, yeah, this I is... I like seeing it. We, yeah. we should not have brought this movie back. Yeah. From the dead? Yeah. Yep. Oh, Sometimes dear. dead is better. The, um... Yes, it's so many catchphrases. Mic drop. Yeah. I'm really excited about Pet Cemetery 2, though. Yeah, let's watch I that. can't even imagine, like... How worse it can get? I read the well, synopsis right now, Is so. it going to be, like, different characters? Are they going to oh, yeah. bring back somebody? Yeah, like, yeah. Is, are the events of this of this film canon? Like, there's, like... My mind is racing. Like, I'm genuinely excited to see Pet Cemetery 2. Well, just, too. To, just so you know that the events and all of Stephen King's work are canon within Stephen King's work. So, for example, in Pet Cemetery, they mention a dog in a nearby town that kills a bunch of people. So... You know, but I mean, was he involved with Pet Cemetery too? Because I could see that getting really complicated. Because like the canon gets really, really complicated. Well, I mean, even in the Marvel movies, you know, you've got your Sony movies and you've got your Disney Fox movies. And you know, well, imagine if of... you lived in a world where the Sony and the Fox and the Marvel movies all existed in the same universe. So, are there references to Pet Cemetery too in any Stephen King books? No, because that wasn't something he written, wrote. It okay. was a book. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Movie. So, yeah, was, like, I mean, it yeah. might be sort of venturing outside of... Oh, that's true. You're right. It exists within its own universe. The, yeah. But if he got a whim and he, you know, like, decided that he really liked that movie, he probably would include it. That's what it is. Okay. Um, yeah. Pet Cemetery 2 starring... 1992 starring Edward Furlong, Anthony Edwards, and Clancy Brown. I keep forgetting it was oh, Clancy shit. Brown. Okay. As, I'm on uh, board. No brain. No pain. Yeah, it we're is watching good. it. So, All right, well, yeah. Yeah. so yeah, it's kind of um, this was a bit of an experiment. I want to thank you folks for coming along, and because I've been thinking about doing um, a show like this for almost a couple of years now, and uh, this was kind of a rough attempt. Yeah, this is really rough, and I'll be better next time. I will actually have a written synopsis for the movie before. I will not be better next time because you can't be better than perfect. So. You're right. Yeah. Um, you want to leave contact info, or is it just the same as usual? We'll leave it in the show notes or something like that. So You can find me, Nat, at Ashes for Foxes on Twitter. And you can also find my podcast at metamachina.com. That's spelled, well, at metamachina on Twitter, but M-E-T-A-M-A-S-H-I-N-A. Twitch.tv slash Jacob Mercy. Jacob Mercy on Twitter. Hit me up. And uh, once again, you can find... Uh, the uh, really do need an official web page for the show, but anyway, we are at you know soundcloud.com slash giving the mic. We do have a Patreon, so if you want to help us put on <laughs> help us cover the costs of uh, of amusements and distractions like this, you can uh, can beer in our rental for Stephen yeah, King movies. You would give us a little one off, you know, you, you know, support us for as little as a dollar a month, or even if you want to do a little one off donation, I think there's a way to do that through there too. That's at patreon.com slash giving the mic. Um, if you want to, you know, email in, if, if you have any th thoughts of what we should have missed, or if you have any suggestions as to your particular, you know, what Stephen King adaptation, what Stephen King film should we do next or in the future, feel free to email us at g uh, giving the mic at gmail.com. Any, um, uh, last words from the, uh, from, uh, from you guys. I know what you're thinking. The ground gone sour. 
British short hairs are the best cat. They are really good. They're so they're those so eyes. There's just yeah. they're so. so I mean, like people are mistaking him for a Russian blue because of his coloration. It's so, but he's just so pretty. No, those orange eyes are so distinctive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there best. we go. All right, good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks good for listening, and good night. I think that went well. fan of most things but bojack doesn't have any appeal to me when i watch the first few episodes well the weird thing about bojack is actually like everything except for the leading character yeah who i find pretty tedious and unfunny and (laughs) yeah i i pointed out that this is basically a tv show about a rich white guy who has the sads 
And somebody tried to argue with me. They're like, no, he's not a rich white guy. He's a horse. I'm uh, like, oh, yeah. Really? Horse, horse, pr- horse has, don't, <coughs> don't have privilege in that universe. Uh, yeah. I mean, what? What are you doing? That doesn't make any sense. That, that This is not a good argument. Well, and, uh, I mean. Horse privilege. And that's not even getting into the whole, like, weird issue of his uh, race-bending best friend thing, like, which is also pretty weird. And I understand that there's an entire episode, like, devoted to her going to Vietnam or whatever mm-hmm. season, so I'm not on board with it. Yeah, uh, Rachel, I think, shotgunned most of the season last night. I am, like, I've... I've seen like sporadic. I think I've the only I've only seen like all of season one, but sporadic episodes hither and yon. I like the uh, I like the art jokes. I like the animal jokes, but 